Welcome to another episode of the Mindset Athlete Podcast with me, James Roberts, transformational coach, two-time Paralympian, and TEDx speaker. I have another awesome episode for you today, so let's get straight into it. And on today's show, I've got Carl Dickinson. Carl previously played scrum half for Harlequins, but started his rugby at Barnard's Castle School and is a graduate of Coventry University and is a product of Bedford Blues Academy System before announcing his retirement in 2017. He has more recently made his Six Nations referee debut this year, 2022, in the tournament when he took charge of Scotland versus France. So welcome onto the show, Carl. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, really looking forward to uh, having a conversation around um, your expertise and field. So um, hopefully it should be a good one. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. And thanks again for agreeing to come on. So if we go back to your days at playing, first of all, and then we'll come on to the refereeing later on, what was it like to play alongside Danny Kerr? <laughs> well, funnily enough, obviously I wouldn't have played alongside Danny Kerr many times purely because we played the same position. Um, so on the odd occasion... Um, I managed to play somehow on the wing for Harlequin, so came on. Obviously, injuries must have been rife that day to get me onto the wing. Um, and I think Danny might have played 10 at one point for me. But, um, no, Danny's, um, you know, I've said this for many years, and when I was playing, he's, on his day, he's one of the best nines in the world. Um, one of the nicest guys um, you'll meet as well. And, you know, he's always there to offer up any advice for the youngsters or or even yourself if you're required. So, and that's probably why he played so many times for England um, because of his character and, and the way he could play the game. Um, and, you know, and, and credit to him. I think Conor O'Shea one day said, um, you know, he, he's the kind of guy you can pull a rabbit out of the hat. You just never know sometimes what he's going to do. And sometimes he can win that game at the the drop of a sixpence kind of thing. So, um, you know, he's a, he's a friend of mine and a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a great, great teammate when I used to play with him. You mentioned Conor O'Shea there. and He's quoted as saying, you are among the best five scrum halves in the country. Um, I mean, at that time, probably, you know, I, I'm never going to say yes on, on the top five scrum halves in the country. Um, I think that was probably one of the years that I was pushing Danny quite hard and managed to get into the England um, reckoning. Um, but obviously, you know, you, you go on what people are saying. You don't want to sit there and, Say, say things you want to let your, your actual play do the, do the talking for you. And, you know, on many occasions, I thought, you know, we played a, played a good game for Harlequins. And, you know, ultimately the year that me and Danny split sort of the, the duties, um, we managed to win the Premiership back in 2012. So, yeah, you let other people do the talking and hopefully you do the acting on the field. Would you say, from your honest opinion, say the scrum half is a little bit more of the workhorse and, and the fly half would take more of the credit? Uh, I, I always probably use the, the scrum half and the flyers together as more of like a, a quarterback um, because ultimately both both guys are making decisions. Um, he, will, he will obviously dictate certain things and, and call the moves for the teams and tell you what you're going to do next. But ultimately, as a nine, you have that... Um, free reign to change stuff you know if you see something different or hear something different and you think it's a better option but I wouldn't say they, they take all the credit um, I'd probably say that 
we kind of work in tandem. Um, and and tens obviously probably do take a little bit more due to the fact they kicked more for goal and um, kind of made the initial decisions on what you do. So what what's your take on Marcus Smith then? Because he's more of the oh, we probably go back to the era of say Gavin Henson. Is the 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 style is coming into how they dress and things like that. Do you think they're more of the outgoing extra right? Extra type, extroverted type players based on that, or do you think he just gets on and gets? No, I mean I've spoken to Marcus on a few occasions, and you know, by by all means, I don't know him really well, but um, he's a very kind of I'd probably say more of an introverted guy okay. when you actually speak to him. Um, it's almost that switch gets flicked when he when he goes onto a field in training or or in a game, and he he shows people what he's made of. He shows people what he can do. Um, and, and by all, all means this year, and, and probably last year, you know, he's taken control at Harlequins and he's probably, you know, led them in the right direction, hence why they won it last year. And this year he's got more of a chance with England. And again, you, you've seen he's been a, an integral part of that team. So I would say off the field, he's probably a little bit more introverted. Um, he keeps himself to himself and doesn't doesn't go out too much. Um, but on the field, again, probably you might see him as an extrovert purely because of the way he plays, very emotional the way he plays and, and very invested in what he's doing. And I had a quick look over your Instagram, Carl, and you shared a picture of playing against your brother um, when he played for Northampton. What was it like for you having a, a brother playing the same position growing up? Well, because we sort of came through two different ways. Like my brother uh, went straight from school straight kind of into um, an academy system at the age of 18. So he went a different direction to me and went from Newcastle and then went from Newcastle to Northampton, whereas I kind of finished school, went to university, and then after university kind of got back into rugby. Um, and then five years later, was very lucky enough to be signed by uh, Dean Richards to play at Harlequins, which led to the obviously the opportunity to play against my brother. Um in the same position meant we sort of very in close proximity to each other. Um, but again, it was more, you play the game on the field, you have a bit of a laugh after and probably a little bit before, but on the field, you're trying to do your best for the team. And, you know, if you could get an extra shot on your, on your brother always, always made, made it kind of a, kind of a day for you. But um, I, I really enjoyed it. It was always a, a different challenge for me. Um, it never really made, made me change the way I played. It just probably added that extra thing that you needed to to pick your game up if you ever had anything where you're thinking, oh, you know, am I playing that well today? Am I, well, listen, I'm playing against my brother. I've got to pick it up now. What was it like for the the rest of the family on that that, that occasion? I think they were neutrals. So it's all about <laughs> they wanted their sons to do well. Um, and it wasn't about a team win. It was more, can we get these guys off the field without one of them hurting the other one? Well, that's a challenge, though, isn't it? In terms of you're going to do whatever it takes to to win that semi final. Yeah, and, and you do it obviously within the laws, but um, if you can, you know, make it harder and make it a hard day for him, then yeah, you're going to do that because ultimately it benefits your team. Um, and you know, when it benefits your team, that's that the carrot was there was making it to the Premiership final that year, which which we were lucky enough to do. So. Yeah, obviously, yeah, you're not going to go outside the, those laws, but you want to you want to make it a hard day for him. So obviously, it hinders his team potentially. 
And we mentioned at the top of the episode that you've now been the the main person, the center uh, of the pitch in this recent Six Nations. What was what was the transition like from deciding to to retire from playing to going into refereeing? Because it it said obviously we've talked about this off air about Wikipedia not being a very reliable source, but you actually did your coach you did your not coaching you did your refereeing qualifications alongside still playing wasn't that a little bit difficult yeah I, I did it for about two and a half years before I retired um and you know it happened one day uh, men Will Skinner guys to play with mentioned he'd done it and I thought it would have been a great idea and something I might enjoy um you know those probably two and a half years probably the first year and a half it wasn't too bad because the level I was refereeing you could referee on a Monday or a Wednesday, which which made it a little bit easier. And if Quinn's play potentially on a Friday night, that means I could try and referee on a Saturday or Sunday. But towards the end of um, the end of my contract, before I moving into um, the RFU, it was it was difficult purely because I moved up a few levels, and most games are Saturdays. Um, so I find myself refereeing probably once a month, if that, just because obviously I had to. Um, play was the priority and if I could fit a refereeing game in then yeah obviously I would but um yeah it was pretty difficult at that point but as I said I think it held me in good stead the fact I'd refereed at least some games before retiring and moving into um moving into professional referees what was your mindset towards the end of your playing career because I think I read somewhere that you said that players should prepare for life off the field <clears throat> and outside of the game what was the mental shift for you? Um, well, at the time, I was I was probably in my early 30s. And I think, and I have say this to a lot of young guys that, that sign, and even some of the younger guys at Quinn's when I was retiring, you never know when your last day is going to be. I was very fortunate that I played for a long time and I could retire on my, my terms, um, you know, which, which was re- really nice. Whereas some guys have to retire through injury, or just don't get another contract. Um, they have to potentially move down the leagues, um, and that ma- means that you're not full time anymore. So I think you know, if I was telling my younger self something, was actually go out and learn as much as you can. You know, when you go up to boxes after games, you know, rather than seeing it as a hindrance, oh, I've got to go up there and you know waste ten minutes of my life. It's well, actually, it's go up there and talk to people for ten minutes, and you never know what opportunities you can get from around that. You know, no matter what people, company they're from or walk of life, you never know, you know, advice or um, potential job opportunities or anything in the future can offer you that that situation. But for me, I was very lucky that Quinn's offered me another contract to carry on playing and the RFU offered me a contract as well, become a professional referee. So it made it slightly easier um, mentally because I had the, you know, the luxury of knowing that I had a job either way. Um, I wasn't at the end of my contract trying to find that job. I'd already sewn up eight months before the end of the season. So mentally, it was it was it was good for me. Um, I think you know certain other people who I've experienced with and spoken to, it's sometimes real difficult because I guess what do you want to be? That's that's first thing you got to ask yourself is what do I actually want to do? What do I want to be? You know, some people have spent 10, 15 years in professional rugby from the age of eighteen, and then suddenly it's what do I want to do? And there's only so many coaching jobs or so many media jobs that actually 
you know, you're 30 to 35 years old, you've got to find another job, which is potentially going to take you to retirement. So I know some guys struggle with that, but um, probably the biggest advice I give to people is, is try different things, speak to different people, try different things. Um, and potentially might not know what, what you actually like. So do you think your transition was a little bit smoother than say what, what my and me listening to you, other people's transition would be? Yeah, you, definitely. You, you haven't lost your identity. You've had, you've had the luxury to some extent to kind of still be within the same lifestyle that you, you, you've had since you were a teenager. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm very, very lucky. I, you know, from the age of sort of 21, I've played rugby and then when it came to retirement at 34, I could have carried on playing. I had that contract ready to sign if I wanted to, but I made that decision to move into refereeing again because I had a contract. For a lot, a lot of guys, you know, January, February, March comes around, there's no contract on the table um, and they're looking around for contracts. And ultimately, if that doesn't come, then you've either got to find another club lower down, which financially potentially might not be as good, or you've got to try and find a job. And a lot of guys don't have a skill set. So, you know, when you've earned you know, X amount of money, uh, 24, 25, 20, whatever it is, 50,000 pounds plus. Well, in everyday life, 50,000 pounds plus job is not an easy job to find, especially you don't have that skills to, to go into it. So, yeah, I, I think my, my kind of transition and has been, was pretty smooth in comparison to a lot of guys. And I was very privileged that I can still, work in a sport that I love and continue to do so. Do you think that's harsh though, Carl, to say that the, those individuals don't have the skill sets because you, how, how you would coin it is you've got, every sportsman's got leadership qualities. They can work cohesively with other individuals. Okay. But de- depend on obviously <laughs> their nature behind it, but they, it's just terminology. It's, it's the, okay. I can understand what you're saying. Of they don't have the experience within whatever workplace they want to go into, but I think if they stay grounded from a competition factor, they probably would be able to find be very, very, very resolute to be and find find that solution. They might have to go down, like like you say, maybe. Be willing to take thirty thousand, forty thousand, maybe twenty thousand, and gain that 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 experience. But that individual and who they are is very competitive, so they will be able to find a way to to progress up that ladder. Yeah, and, and that's you know what I meant by skill set is if you, is if you wanted to go into I don't know for example down in London going to trading. Well, it, it's not as simple as well. I'm I'm a great leader. I played sport. I'm very competitive. You've got to know what you're doing because if you go into a trading job and you don't know what you're doing, well, you're going to lose a company a lot of money potentially. Mm. And then you're not going to have a job very long. Um, and again, like, you know, some guys earn over a hundred thousand pounds, what they're doing in a job. And at the age of 28 being like, well, we're not going to renew your contract. So then it's, do you move down a league? You take maybe 30 or 40, but you're still living in London for example, mm-hmm. and thirty-four thousand pounds doesn't go a long way. And then, if you don't have that contract, well, then you, to earn twenty thousand pound is even even harder. So then, you know, it's it's about I, I would say is just figure out you got to figure out early enough what you want to do and where you want to go. And, and that's as I said before is trying different things. You know, if you want to be a financial advisor, if you want to be a chef, if you want to, be, I don't know, I'm just throwing out loads of kind of different jobs here. 
you've got to try them to see if you like them first because, you know, you might go, oh, I want to be in media the whole time. I want to be in media. Get a media job. Great job, but you hate it. It's not what you want to do. Um, and, you know, particularly where we live in London, to earn a, a, a £20,000 salary is very, very difficult to live. You'd always have to move away to do so to be able to get that job. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, skill set wise, yes, rugby players have a lot of skills. But can those skills transform into um, financial rewards in business or, you know, live a lifestyle that you maybe be accustomed to? Um, and I know the majority of people, that's a no. Some people, completely. They have different things. They've got different contacts. They've done different things. Um, they've learned different things through their life. But for the vast majority of rugby players, it's 30 years old. Okay, now what's what's my career going to be? Because your career's lasted 10 years. Well, for the next 35, what are you going to do? Um, and, and, and that's probably the biggest challenge. Do you think that comes back to education of you know, giving the, the younger players the these opportunities to see things outside of sport, okay, that might be your number one goal. And and I think for you you and I, it would have been the same back then. It's, I'm going to put all my eggs in this basket because I want to succeed in this field and I'm going to stop at nothing to, to, be, to make that a reality. But do you think you need to, to educate the players to kind of go, well, not everybody is going to succeed in this environment. You need to have, I know people don't like to hear this, but plan B or a backup plan just in case. And then you you do hit the ground running. Yeah, I think, I mean, again, they have people coming into professional clubs, RPA representatives who, you know, individually will go through, and this is not just with young guys, this is with everybody, and say, listen, what have you done? What's your qualifications? Right? Is is there something you want to get involved in? How can we help do that? So, just for example, when we used to play at Quinns, we'd be in Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday would be a day off, Thursday, Friday, half day before a weekend. So Wednesday potentially um, could be a day where you go and explore and do something different. Maybe spend half a day. So it doesn't need to even be a whole day. Half a day with a business or half a day doing some college stuff or whatever it is. So there is opportunities and there is people, you know, giving you the opportunity to educate yourself. You know, I believe there's grants you can take for educational needs. I think sometimes it's the person they want to, they have to want to do it. And I think in certain, you know, areas, again, I don't speak for everyone here that, you know, when you're 19, 20 years old, you sign your first contract, you think, great, I've made it. I've made it now. There's me for the next 10, 12 years. I've got 12 years to figure out what I want to do. But again, you don't know what can happen in the future. You know, injuries, you know, potentially not not being as good as everyone else. Someone else might come along. The next coach who comes on might not think you're as good as the last coach. So then suddenly you're down the pecking order. So th- there's lots of variables which can happen in that short period of time. Um, and, and I was probably not not one of them as in like I was naive to it, but I probably didn't do as much as I needed to when I was in my my 20s, you know, coming into my 30s. I, I was very fortunate that one conversation at 30 years old or 31 years old pushed me into something and went, right, let's let's go. Um, and I'm very fortunate with that conversation because without it, I might not have been where I am today. 
So that moves me nicely, Carl, to, to moving on into obviously your, your refereeing career. If we go back to the to last season and your altercation with Carl Sinclair, uh, that's me paraphrasing the the the, the um, description from Rugby Path. Do you do you think you, to a certain extent, being an ex-player in the beginning, got a harder time because you might have favoured certain individuals or certain teams and 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 you can't you kind of more having this approach of being the PE teacher trying to t- referee his own team you can't be seen to favor one team uh that you used to play for or you know certain individuals because it would be well he's he's like the 16th man or if you give decisions to the, to the other team oh he's he's not giving us the rubber to green cuz obviously you don't want to be seen as being favorable i mean I've only refereed Quinns, for example, twice in a competitive games. Once uh, a couple of weeks ago, which is which is nearly five years after I retired, and then another time maybe last year down at Gloucester. I've only done them twice, um, and I go out there with a the mentality: this is a game of rugby. There's guys I'm going to know on both teams. So, for example, the um, the Newcastle game I did. I knew a few of the players from Newcastle that I played with previously um, and that I knew outside of rugby. Same with some of the Harlequins lot. I knew some of them that, um, you know, colleagues with, former colleagues with. There's also guys in the Harlequins teams that I've never met. I don't know. I never played with. So um, I go out with the idea of this is the game of rugby. I'm going to refer it. I guess the most difficult part is rugby's not a black and white sport. So certain things are led to interpretation. So the people are always going to have their opinions and think that I go out there to help Quins or hinder Quins or whatever it is, depending on what's going on, to make me not look favourable. But I look at it, a game of rugby, I'm out there refereeing what's in front of me. I guess the, the toughest part would come, and luckily, touch what I've not had to deal with this, is if it's a one-score game or one-point game and the final decision of the game is for one team or the other to win. Whichever way I go someone's going to say he's done that because he used to play with them. And someone else might go, well, actually, he's not giving it because he doesn't want to look like he's given something to the team he used to play for. So that's probably the the most difficult situation that I'd be put into. Uh, but luckily, in touch when it doesn't happen, I won't be put into that situation. In regards to other teams, I, I know players on loads of different teams. Um, and I, I referee, for example, the incident you spoke about with Kyle, he was at Bristol at the time. I'd never played for Bristol. Um, I'd obviously played against him, but, you know, knew Carl from obviously my playing days. Um, the difference in that situation was there was no crowd. Uh, normally you have a bit of crowd. And there's a lot of noise going on around you. Now, I heard Kyle say something. Could I repeat what he said? Like 100%? Absolutely not. So hence why I didn't really say too much because I didn't know exactly what he said. But then people's perception, and now with social media and things like that, everyone has an opinion. And because everyone else heard it perfectly clear through a mic, they think that I should have heard it perfectly clear through a mic, which I don't, didn't because I had other people around me talking and asking me questions. So, you know, and, and with social media, as I mentioned now, everyone has an opinion. Everyone thinks, you know, this should happen or that should happen. You have journalists or... Um, 
pundits um, asking questions because ultimately their job is to get a reaction to see what people think. Um, you know, would I do anything different if I went back again? Well, I, I, no, because I, I didn't know what he'd said. So there's not a lot I could do differently. And if I heard what he said, then again, there's a different path you can take um, and it might have led to a different outcome. But um, for me, ultimately, it's I don't look at any game of rugby any differently, no matter who's playing. You know, even if my brother was playing and I was refereeing him, it'd still be the same. It's a game of rugby. I'm refereeing the decisions that I see in front of me, which I think are correct. And ultimately, of course, I'm going to get some things wrong. You know, like players get things wrong, I'm going to get things wrong. But I don't go out there intentionally to try and get things wrong or aid other teams. I appreciate that, Carl. What What was it like emotionally the first first time you, you refereed Quinn's out of curiosity? Um, it was... Probably emotionally wasn't it wasn't too bad purely because you don't I didn't actually see much of the team before the game I had a quick chat with the front row um, obviously you smile and have a conversation after the game but I was very again I was very very lucky that the game made it really easy to me that Harlequins played very well and Gloucester didn't play as well as they probably should have um, which took the game away from me and made it a, an easier game to referee and ultimately a result which I had nothing to do with and. You know, everyone can clearly see that Quinn's deserved to win and should have won. So emotionally, again, you kind of go into the game thinking a few things here and there. But as soon as you blow the whistle, then, you know, as I did as a player, it's it's time to switch on and, and go into sort of work mode. So what was it, if we go more into the, the, the international role, what was it like for you to finally be the head official for the what was the first game of the Six Nations? Oh, I mean, it was, first of all, a massive privilege. Um, I, I mean, again, I was lucky enough to do two Tier 1 games before I did a Wales-France and South Africa versus Argentina, but with no crowd. So a completely different experience when you haven't got that atmosphere and the noise surrounding it. And I was nervous before the game. It's probably the first game in a while I've been nervous, I think purely because of the crowd situation. I think you've got sixty to 70,000 people. Um, and you know in these Six Nation games, it's it, they're massive. You know, points and, you know, tries and everything it mean, means so much. So you want to get the decisions correct. Um, and, and I was nervous for the game. Um, but again, as soon as you blow the whistle, you, you sort of try and blank those nerves out and go into refereeing what's in front of you. And that's kind of the way I've always worked, um, as I said, playing, is as soon as the whistle goes, it's, it's into that work mode. As soon as the whistle stops, you can have those conversations with guys around you, um, your, your, your ARs, your TML, but also the players because, you know, ultimately you're speaking to them. They're giving you feedback. You're giving them feedback during the game, um, which which can help. Um, and also it, it, it fills those kind of um, times when nothing's happening in the game, whistle stop, but the crowd is still there. Um, and, you know, does the crowd affect... The game, of course they do. The, you know, it's a lot of people shouting. And probably one of the biggest things that we, you know, we mentioned in refereeing is, well, people can have a, a comment live when the game is going. People, But as soon as that goes on the screen, then suddenly you've got 60,000, 70,000 people who can have an opinion the same as you on a thing that's slowed down. And that's when you get drawn into these situations where crowd noise, crowds booings, crowd reactions can potentially influence decisions you make now listen we we should be good enough um 
to not be affected by that. And I personally have never sort of thought to myself, well, I'm going to make a decision for a crowd, but I know that you know, they can have a, a massive impact on, on your psyche and your mentality when, you know, you've got 60,000 people booing, thinking it's a, a high tackle and it should be maybe a red card. And then you put out a yellow card um, and you're happy with the process you've gone through, but the crowd think it should be red and they, they let you know. And you and I, we we, we were fortunate enough to, to meet, I think it was last year, with uh, Nottinghamshire, Lincolnshire, Derbyshire Rugby Union referees. So I had to check what it was. So I didn't get it wrong. Uh, and we were talking about, because you agreed with what, a comment that I, that I said in terms of people don't think about the psychology of the referee uh, and the split second decision you've got to make and the impact of the the consequences after the fact because you mentioned it before with social media as you've got a split second to make a decision okay uh the the decision between a yellow and a red you'd obviously get support from your touchline officials the tmo and ultimately based on what you've got they'll give you secondary information and i think what you mentioned there with social media having a replay slowing it down and obviously you and I both know uh, a replay slow down <laughs> slow makes it make it a lot worse than than say in real time but i think what people don't comprehend is you know the the effect that it has maybe lower down the the, the tears of refereeing it's you're probably well prepared internationally that okay there's going to be pendulum swims throughout the course of the game in both directions for both teams but somebody having an outburst from the sideline lower down can maybe put that person off their game and then they have a they're not able to rebound back from it. I can't remember what my 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 comment was for them last year but I I looked at it more down the lines of well what about these individuals you, you, you the players have an out the coaches have an out but what about the person in the middle of bringing it up of I think I mentioned the uh, Welsh England game last season with the yeah. the French referee making and they made, obviously the English press will make a big deal about it the Welsh will make a big deal about it it's like well I I think I mentioned if, if they'd have spoken to each other in their native tongue I think they make a different decision okay it wasn't the right one everybody's the Welsh public's not going to complain about it okay it's not the right decision but did it impact the game at that moment in time massively because it's a massive swing in one direction but hey as you mentioned Carl you're you 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 are human beings at the end of the day it's you've got to remember that you're not a robot in the middle I think players used to get it a little bit as well oh you need to be robotic thus you should be able to take criticism from from the outside it's like well no but because Ultimately, if you're hearing so much negativity, you're going to start believing it. So it's going to affect your performance in the long run because you're going to be your harshest critic and then you've got obviously 10 times amount of pressure and social media probably puts on 100% because you want to get it from everywhere because if they can find you on social media, they're going to tag you in it and well, da, 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 da. and it, if you didn't turn your phone off, it could go, it could have disastrous consequences. And I think you, you touch on two different sort of situations there. You touch on the amateur sort of referee when he's down at his local um, 
you know, in any sport, this doesn't even have to be rugby, any, any sort of sport where you have crowds and people um, shouting things. Um, and, and if I'm honest, I think it sometimes comes down to, you know, people who aren't educated in the laws, particularly in rugby. Um, listen, don't get me wrong. We, we're going to get stuff wrong. That, that's factual. Again, you mentioned it. We're not robots. We're human beings. We're going to get certain things wrong. What you hope that you don't get wrong is things that are game-changing or get teams to win. So you look at the lower leagues, um, when people are shouting at the referee, um, coaches, supporters, you've got, you've got to be strong-minded and strong-willed to almost put that out of the way and still focus on on what you're trying to do and the job that's at hand. And don't get me wrong, I, I, I'm sure that it's on occasions where referees are probably in their mind lost it in their head because of what's happened. Because comments like that are, are you know, hurtful. Uh, they're not needed. And I think I read not so long ago on social media that um, certain games aren't being refereed because there's not enough referees because referees have had enough of, of some of the abuse that's occurred from outside um, teams and stuff, which, which, which is really sad. And, you know, listen, when you play at level eight, level nine, you're going to get guys who literally work all week and, and come in to do a game so you can play the sport. And what they don't need is people on the sideline, you know, throwing negative comments out, you know, offsides or forward or, or whatever it is. Um, you know, it's 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 not required. Like again, you can do it in a way that which is respectful. Um, you don't need to be derogatory towards these guys. They're just doing the best they can. They're not trying to make mistakes out there, which leads to guys not wanting to turn back up. Um, they're not being paid for it in rugby. They just get their expenses. So. It's it, it, it's tough. It's tough to see, and you know you, you want rugby to grow as a sport, or you need referees in, in terms of that. I think and you, I guess you you mentioned a good point there because I, I I had a game yesterday, but wheelchair basketball. I had an outburst, it was like raw emotion. I was the first to condone my 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 behaviour to the referee. I, I I didn't say anything to them, but it's like yeah, it's, if I let this get out of hand, it's going to cost the team because. If I don't get my 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 shit in order, it's 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 gonna the the referee can turn on the six months. As, oh, oh yeah, you'll be I mean, outspoken. Okay, someone, here we go. <laughs> someone shouts at you, you're instantly like, oh, and then you almost lose the referee again. This is human nature. Certain instances, you'll lose that referee for a few minutes. But he just like he doesn't want to. He's not interested in having that relationship with you. He's just like, no thanks. I just don't. I don't need that. Um, and, and it takes a lot for a referee to come back or even anyone to come back into that and kind of put it behind them and move on. Like, you know, the way I kind of do it, I have like different ways. Like I just rub my fingers when I, I in my head, I need to reset. Cause I just rub my fingers, like reset now and move on. So that's more like the amateur level, um, which, you know, again, these guys aren't professional that they, they, they do their jobs. They come, they do the game and they don't deserve the outbur- outburst from certain people when, Sometimes they're not even right, these guys on the sideline. They're thrown out. And again, when you come to professional level, obviously we have a different situation with social media and things like that. And again, yep, I get probably 15, 20 messages after a game. Um, and I'd probably say two out of the 20 or whatever are probably positive. Um, and they're questioning things and saying things. Um and again, some of it's just to do with not being educated on the law. They don't know what the law is. Uh, they think they're right. They're saying certain things. 
And sometimes they might be right. They might be completely correct. But, you know, when we miss a forward pass or miss an offside, we're not, we're not trying to do that. It's not like we've said, oh, we don't want to do it today. We don't fancy refereeing forward passes. We just haven't seen it. Or we don't think it's forward. Or we don't think it's offside. But when you get these people who type stuff on social media, which is really derogatory and really personal, and I know certain referees have had it where their family members have been part of these things, and it's been it's been really bad. It's really tough. And you know, I, I think it takes a certain person to watch a game of rugby or any sport, take their phone out or take their laptop out and tweet something which is completely unnecessary towards you know a match official or even a player. Um, and you know, pundits will ask questions, things that will be discussed, which which we get yellow and red cards or penalties. You know, these are kind of things where people are going to have an opinion. And sometimes people might think red, some people might think yellow. And genuinely, sometimes neither are the wrong answer. They're, they're, they're right on how you explain it. But because of the power of social media, now everyone has an opinion on that. And that's, unfortunately, you know, I think the downfall in certain situations is people's thoughts and things they put down on social media towards referees and actually tag them in these responses but well for well knowing that these guys are on social media i think is really really sad um and personally like i don't let it affect me in any way um i look at it as everyone's entitled to their opinion you know if you think that then that's great you know if, if you want to go home and sit and talk about it it's fine if you want to put it on social media it's where some people can read it and comment with you that's fine um but you're not out there doing the job you're not out in the middle doing that. I don't come to your workplace, sitting behind you, and then when you do something that I don't agree with or don't like, sit there and tweet about it and tag you in it for people to see. Now, yeah, obviously it's different for us because we have a social media following, so more people are going to see it. But I, I think it look at it in the same same word. And you know, I know referees who have um, been had this abuse on social media, who've actually um, you've taken that found their company they work for and showed their boss what they've done. Because I think it's really disrespectful. Um, and we, we, we're not want to do that in, in their, our job. We don't want to go into their workplace and do things like and say things to them. So, you know, listen, we all use the phrase, if, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Mm -hmm. Listen, comment on stuff. If you think it's a red card, yeah, great. If you think it's a red card, tell us why. If you think it's a yellow card, yeah, great, tell us why. But well, what we don't want is actual, like, um, profanities and swear words put towards us based on an offside decision or a forward pass or something which it's not really a discussion point um, because it does affect people and you know what you want you want guys who are out there every week refereeing because then you have a sport then you have a spectacle without the guys in the middle you have nothing um so that's probably the, probably how i'd stop my rant now that's probably the thing i'd say say most well it's it's it, it, it. I, I I totally agree with you, Carl. It it is that's how I've been brought up. If you haven't got anything nice to say, you don't say it at all. And it's one of those things that even in my my playing well elite playing days, playing high level sport, I was always taught. Well, if you're going to put it out on social media, okay, the the, the platforms were very young then, and maybe a little bit more uh, naive and a little bit more nice. But anything that you put out there is, is going to be there forever. So you've got to think twice as like, well, what I say in to, towards anything is going to have consequence or 
uh, effects. Yeah, definitely. Whatever you whatever you put out there is going to have massive effect. You look at now with sportsmen now who put out tweets when they were young, um, and you, you, people have been. You know, I think it was one of the Argentinian captains, the Argentina Pablo Matera, had a tweet. He tweet when he was like in his teens, and people come back to to make reference to that. I think it's happened in other sports as well. So whatever you put out there is in, in the public domain. So. Why would you want to say certain things? Because I find when, when you actually speak to these people in person, again, I don't know who Mark 365 is. I have no idea. But I can guarantee you if I spoke to him in person in front of him, I would be respectful to him. I would ask him if he, if he says, oh, you missed this and stuff. Like, no problem. Well, let, let's have a conversation. Let's talk about it. You don't need to just shout stuff or tweet stuff behind a, you know, keep what we call them keyboard words. Have a conversation with me. And, you know, something I, I, I said that I'd love to do, and it'd be great to go through things with guys, is actually go into local rugby clubs and go through review processes. And actually, you know, because that benefits me, the fact that you're educating um, the public on, on the laws of the game uh, and also on how we re get reviewed ourselves. Because as you said before, I'm, I'm my biggest critic. I'll go through the game and, and, and criticise myself and go, could I have done this better? Could I have done something different there? Why did I miss this or why did I get that wrong? So I don't need other people to tell me, but I'd like to go out there and show people how we do it, what we go through, and, and get these questions from people on what what do they find frustrating about refereeing like when they see us refereeing? What what do you think that we could improve on? And then we have that have that dialogue. Because you know, ultimately that's what you want. You want people to go to the game knowing more, but also going to enjoy it as well. Well, you make a good point there, Carl. Communication both ways is between uh, referees and the players, referees, and, and I think where people maybe not understand is like you guys don't have eyes in the back of the head. There's only four of you officiating, thirty men plus, and then how many cameras are there in, at the at the high level of sport? Probably I don't know. There's multiple angles you see on television. Uh, offside and, and, and forward pass is the camera angle. So what you see and what I see on the television are two different things. Oh, com completely. And I guess as well, other people don't understand there's protocols as well. So, you know, everyone has conversations around maybe we're using games, the TMO too much. So a TMO is not going to come in for a forward pass or an offside. Because if he did... Well, then we'd have stop-start games a lot more. And then people would complain, the TMO's coming in too much. Where's the entertainment of the game? So you've got to find that balance. And there's protocols in there for how, when the TMO can come in. But ultimately, the team of three on, on the field need to make those decisions. Um, so, you know, you, you want the go game to flow without missing clear infringements. But there's going to be stuff we miss. But that adds to sometimes to the... Um, you know, the momentum of the game and the entertainment. Well, I think it's one of those things. I think you personally and referees as a whole, you don't want the spectacle to be about you. It's You want the game to speak for itself. And the less that I'm talked about, the better. Oh, 100%. You want to go under the radar. At the very end of the game, what you want people to say is, what a great game of rugby. So-and-so scored this try. What a tremendous try. What a great game. And if we're not mentioned, that's fantastic. If we start getting mentioned, then we know that 
the game hasn't gone to plan and we've had some sort of negative potentially effect on the game. Yeah, but sometimes that's not your fault. So be it like a red card. But unfortunately, that's that's the way that's the way it is. You, they, even if it's not your fault, things will still be talked about because you were the referee and you gave that red card. And you know, a lot of people may agree with you. But certain people might not. So you know, again, everyone's going to have their opinions. Um, and, and again, that's that's the thing. You don't want things to go on the screen necessarily, or or have to referee things when you don't need to because you, you that they're the biggest discussion points. That's where people get involved in the game. Whereas if the game flows, well, then people aren't talking about that. But we get that certain situations, you have to go and put stuff on the screen and ultimately you have to be good enough and that's why you at the, the level you are is you have to be good enough to make the right decision. But I think the, the red card decision... Most of the time, the rule speaks for itself. If you hit somebody in the head, bang, you're gone. That's 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 for the players to change, evolve and to change their game. So this is the the protocol in which the sport is moving in this direction for player safety. You guys know what the rules are. This is okay. It's almost two years now. Okay, there's going to be mitigating circumstances based on if it's come from the the chest up, etc. Uh, is there any malice? things like that but that's something you will talk talk about yeah. and, and at the <laughs> high level you see that conversation with the, the television the tmo and things like that yeah and, that, and you, you're going to go through the process regardless if it's head contact or, or a different type of red card but ultimately again certain people are going to have their own opinions on it they're going to have their they're going to follow their their process and what they think should be done and you know, I, I don't think that's a bad thing like the dialogue that's that's probably things where it's a it's a positive, like, you know, where the pundits put on, you know, on social media, is this a red card? Should it be a yellow? And you open that discussion because then you get people talking about rugby, which which is fine. It's great. That's what you want. Because um, certain people are going to have different opinions. Um, and that's, again, human nature. Um, so, you know, this is, again, as you said, you don't want to be spoken about at the, get, at the end of the game, but sometimes, you know, you can't really... Uh, go unnoticed when certain instances like that become apparent. Yeah, but there will be some bias towards, if, is your team affected, etc. Obviously, some people will look at it, in spite of their team being put down to 14 men, it was the right decision. Some people obviously will, will stick to their oh, guns of course. and of course be, well, that's just biased. Yeah, of course, that's just yeah, biased, but that's, that's going to happen. But again, that happens in all sports and, and everything, where people are going to favour the team they support or um, are involved with. So that probably brings you nicely then, Carl, because you shared a picture. It, it's, it, it, it brings up what you said about social media being um, used, used in the bad instances. But the picture of you playing for Harlequins, again, say I'll have to remember what, what it was, and you obviously making a bad tackle. Obviously, it, wouldn't have been a, it probably would have maybe been a yellow at worst back then. Yeah. Can, can you picture the picture that I'm talking about? You mean, yeah, I know exactly what it was. Um, yeah, like obviously back then, it probably what it probably was is more or less play on or even just whereas now it'd be a little bit different due to you know where concussion and the sport has gone. Um, and again, it's not like I intended to do it, I didn't mean to do it, but sometimes you have little time to react, um, and these things happen. And being the size I was compared to some of these guys, it's trying to figure out a way of getting these guys down without you know getting brushed aside. 
Um, but, you know, social media can be there to have fun as well, uh, be there in the positive stuff. You know, for example, the picture I put in this morning from the game in Ireland this weekend, working with everybody. Um, but, you know, it's, it's social media for me is, is about being, having fun, have, interacting with other people, having conversations with people, putting stuff up there for people to comment on. And it's, it should be a positive outcome rather than going on there to, to moan and uh, criticise and, and, and be derogatory towards other people. Because, again, as I said before, if you've got nothing nice to say, wh- wh- why say anything at all? Because all you're doing is going to affect these people um, in, in a way which, which, which you shouldn't. And that's, that's not what you want to happen. Sport is supposed to be enjoyable. I agree totally. Do you think even me bringing up that's very that's something that you could use like for educational purposes as well? Okay, this is this is then this is me even as a player now I'm a referee. Obviously, I'm gonna make a different decision. Yeah, I I, I don't think it's. I mean, I, I change my I say my demeanor kind of changed from being a player to a referee because I had to. I couldn't have that edge and that different style of communication as a player as a referee. It just wouldn't work. So for me, it was changing the way I spoke to people and how I reacted and having that control when, you know, certain situations are going to, obviously inside, going to spark you and you can be like, okay, it's an experience how to reset. And, you know, mine, as I said, is what I, I have that trigger, just rub my fingers together and that in, in my head just means reset, take, take a breath and move on. And we, we had a guy come into, I can't remember, is that French guy come and talk to us at the uh, World Rugby Camp fascinating guy talked about you know um resilience and, and trust and stuff in in day-to-day life and everything and i was fascinated by it all but he was there like you're going to have different ways you're going to react to different situations it's all about how you react and how how can you react which which on the outside which portrays what you what you're thinking so inside you could be burning up but if you portray that on the outside well then there we're going to have the problem. Or can you do something? Is there a way you can find to be burning up inside, but look calm, collected, and talk nicely on the outside, which which comes across that in a good way to other people listening and to the people you're communicating with. Do you think that's why rugby's got that stereotype of you know it's 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 a it's a thug kind of sport played by gentlemen? Um, I think, I, I mean, that could be the reason why, but the difference again, you just, I'm just going to compare football is our mics are all open. So when we talk, everybody on TV and in the crowd can hear us. In football, that's not the case. You can't hear what the referee's saying. You can't hear what the player's saying. Now, is that on purpose? I don't know. But I guess if we said something over the mic, well, I use the phrase, whatever comes out of your mouth, you're accountable for. So you, you've got to come out with a way that you can actually speak coherently and in a manner which you would choose to be spoken to, to other people in, in the sport. So again, that's that's the difference between football and rugby. I, I don't know the reason why it's not, but in rugby, I think having the mic open really helps um, with the way people kind of respect each other and the way people talk to each other. We're coming close to the end of the episode now, Carl. And I wanted to ask you this, because I've seen lots of your Instagram, and I've had the privilege of being able to speak to somebody that's quite high-level referee now. 
what is your most memorable place that you've officiated to date? Because you've obviously been to the World Cup out in, in Japan. I've been to Argentina. What what is what is the most memorable place for you, and why? So I'd probably use this in in two ways. One very easy because of the Scotland France game was my first Six Nations game. But before that, I would say Japan, and it's a close between two two games purely um, because it was the first the big World Cup game in Yokohama between New Zealand and South Africa where. You know, it was 72,000 people in the stadium. It was just an unbelievable experience. Closely with, um, we did Wales versus Fiji in Oita. Only, you know, not a bigger stadium, but just the game of rugby was unbelievable. Um, and the crowd made it as well with it. So there's not definitely one there, but those kind of three situations will just be, you know, three um, fantastic occasions, which I, I literally will never forget. And this is a question I ask all my guests now. Um, if you got to sit down with any athlete, and put, put, you can put your athlete hat back on now. If you had to sit down with any athlete, dead or alive for that matter, who would that be and why? So I would sit down with um, Michael Jordan. Uh, and purely because I've seen documentaries on him. Um, obviously, he's his kind of, you know, what he did um, in the sport was unbelievable. But his competitive nature and how he spoke to people and how he interacted with people was different on a daily basis. And what I mean by that was, you know, when you, you see guys being interviewed now, like your Steve Kerr's and people like that, he was very uh, potentially like derogatory towards these guys, but that's because he was trying to push them. So, you know, I'd want to know what, why he was like that. Did he feel like the way he spoke to him was got the best out of them? Or by being, um, you know, could he have been nice and still got the same out of it? Why was he so competitive? What what drove him to be that way? You know, why did he want to come back after what he's done? What, what did he need to do? What did he feel like he needed to achieve in the sport? There'd be like so many questions like that. I'd love to kind of pick his brain on because obviously you only see snippets of what you see in certain interviews and certain uh, programs that he's done. But, um, you know, what he did in the sport was just like unbelievable but the stories around that what people give that they kind of fascinate fascinate me more so i think asking him these these sort of questions would be great and i think you could use that in our sport as well within the refereeing side of things certain certain aspects of of, of what he's done in his past and my final question before we wrap up the episode if you have to summarize what we've been speaking about into one sentence i could sum up what uh, one with one sentence kind of the, the episode as a whole how would i do that mm-hmm. um i'd probably say plan the future plan for the future and don't pay attention to everything that's said about you outside of the sport i appreciate that. that's okay because um i think again they're, they're so key with the you know mental resilience and things like that and obviously the future of yourself as well so they're probably the two key parts of it. So once again, Carl, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Athlete Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. The absolute pleasure to be on. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. Thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode and got loads from it. Anything that was included and discussed will be available in the show notes below. 
And I would love to hear from you. Come and connect and ask your questions. I've been James Roberts from jamesowenroberts.com. Remember this quote by Chris Hart. An athlete is a mindset. It's how you prepare, think, and execute, not by some elite status or physical stature. Anybody can be an athlete. <laughs>